Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Dobry večer and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Dow. Good evening and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast. I'm your host Pete Coleman and I'm Travis Dow from the History of Alchemy Podcast. One of the more beautiful sites in Prague is the Charles Bridge. Summertime tourists cross this attraction by the thousands for picturesque shots of the city or the mighty Vltava River below. Yet it's hard to picture the chaos that took place on this bridge in 1648. The scene was a hectic free-for-all between all advancing Swedish troops and the civilian progress defending the entrance to Old Town. Poor and wealthy alike stacked debris and rubble under the Coronation Bridge gate to hold off the marauding Swedes from laying waste to all of Prague. Hand-to-hand combat would ensue. The Thirty Years' War would cause a great deal of bloodshed to the Czech and Moravian people. The world must have seemed to come undone during the height of this counter-reformation. Trav, throughout the history of our podcast, we've touched on the heavy weight of the Thirty Years' War and its impact upon Prague and the Bohemian people. Tonight, we focus on one of the darker times in European history when the Swedes ran roughshod through all of Bohemia and Moravia at the height of the Thirty Years' War. That's right, Pete. But before we dive into the battle for Prague or the subsequent siege of Brno in Moravia, let's provide some background on the Swedes' rise to power and their role in Thirty Years' War. The Danish War in 1625 helped to draw lines between Swedes and the Danes and thus empower the Swedish war machine under Gustav Adolf. After several attempts by the Holy Roman Empire to prevent the spread of Protestantism in Europe, King Gustav II Adolf of Sweden ordered a full-scale invasion of the Catholic states. Although he's killed in action, his armies successfully defeated their enemies and gave birth to the Swedish Empire after proving their ability in combat. Now, the subsequent Swedish war brought the Swedes to flex their political and military muscles on German soil in the 1630s. There is much we are leaving out here for the sake of brevity, but one thing you you must let sink in is the Swedes were now major players on the continent and would have a say in the Thirty Years' War like no other. By 1635, the Swedes were gathering forces to face off with the anti-Habsburg coalition. The Swedes agreed to join forces with the French, and thus the bloodiest part of the Thirty Years' War raged on. We talk about the Thirty Years' War, and this is something that, if if you're you know just kind of reading a couple books on history, you're not really interested so much in history, but maybe you want to dive in a little bit and knowing some of the major benchmarks of 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 humanity's struggle, especially when it comes to issues of religion and power struggles within Western Europe. 
you have to really look at the Thirty Years' War. Get re-engaged with this Thirty Years' War. It had so much devastation and caused so much uh, change within the empires of Western Europe that uh, it's a shame that it doesn't get as much attention as it should. Mercenaries that were running roughshod across, across all of Western Europe, such as the Swedish mercenaries, Europe basically agreed to kind of forego with doing mercenaries for a very long time. We've mentioned it before, but if you think about it, mercenaries don't have any sort of national loyalty. They're basically just fighting for the highest bidder, right? So what that means is they don't care what country they're in. They don't care if they're a Holy Roman Empire or Bohemia, the Austrian Empire, you name it. They'll just, you know, take what they want. They live off the land. In fact, that's cheaper uh, for whoever's funding the war to just say, hey, yeah, you know, pillage and live off the land. However, what that means is, is the Thirty Years' War ended up devastating 10% of the population to kind of disappeared. And that sounds like a high enough number already. But when we're talking about Bohemia, Central Germany, and Silesia, we're actually talking about more like 50 to 70%. Some, and then the rest of Germany and around there, 30%. Um, that is crazy. So whole villages got wiped out. Um, and then, yeah, part of the peace treaty was saying, okay, first of all, now we should probably have standing armies and, and abolish this, this mercenary forces once and for all. For our American listeners, this you might equate this to maybe Sherman's march to the sea on steroids. Uh, th this was, there was no hold, holds barred on this one. Uh, they, they would raise cities to the ground, kill and murder uh, and rape all across uh, the, uh, Moravia and, and Bohemia. And the Swed army did just that as they marched right through the heart of this nation, um, all the way to the, uh, from one end of the Bohemian lands back to the other. War was coming to the Czech people, and there would be blood to pay. As we're getting closer to the siege of uh, siege of Bruno, and of course the, the the Battle of Prague, let's name some of the players that are very important to this conflict. And we'll start with the Swedes. Count Hans Christoph von Königsmark was the son of Conrad and Beatrix, uh, and he was a Swedish German soldier who commanded the Swedens' legendary flying column. Now, the flying column was a very quick-moving force. That's why they called him the flying column, which played a key role in Gustav Adolf's strategy. He was best remembered for his leadership in this very same Battle of Prague in 1648. Leonard Tortensen was remarkable for his extraordinary and incalculable rapidity of his movements through the very frequency that he had to lead his army through one, one form of battle to another. Uh, his infirmities would, would not permit him to mount a horse, but yet it did not really kind of tone him down as far as being a fierce warrior. He was often considered one of the most scientific artillery officers of the day and most successful engineer of the Swedish army. So when you're talking about moving from over mountains and waterways and trying to make bridges and uh, trying to transverse enemy territory, you wanted this guy with you. All right. And Travis, let's look at, let's look at the uh, other side of this. Who was leading the civilians of Prague to stop the Swedes from coming over the bridge? Um, we have Count Rudolf Colorado Valsi, who did his best to basically keep the Swedes out of Prague. We really want to paint you a picture, and if you were to take a tour here at Prague Castle, the reason I say Prague Castle because that place was looted by the Swedes when they could not cross the bridge, but the main reason that they couldn't cross the bridge that any tour guide will tell you was because the citizenry of Prague came to the rescue. They put boxes and, and, and anything they could get their hands on that could be movable to on the bridge as a blockade stop the Swedes from moving with their guns and with their artillery to get through old to get to Old Town because I knew once that happened it was done uh, the reputation of the Swedes preceded them 
and on Count Colorado von, von Valsi was the guy that was leading the civilians to stop this from happening. So now we're gathered in knee-deep in the Battle of Prague in 1648. And this happened on July 25th through November 1st uh, of 1648. So it was kind of a, a drawn-out battle bits and pieces uh, as we're talking about this one particular action during the war on Charles Bridge. And this was the last action of the Thirty Years' War. General Hans Christoph von Konigsmark commanded Sweden's flying column, as we mentioned, and he entered the city, was defended by the Field Marshal Rodolfo Colorado Mels Wallace, a former Wallenstein general and a veteran of the Siege of Mantua, and was, the and was at the Battle of Lutzen and captured Prague Castle on the western bank of the Vltava River. The Swedes attempted to enter the Old Town on the eastern bank of the river, but were repulsed by Charles Bridge by Colorado's men. And by the way, if you, Wallenstein sounds familiar, that's because Johannes Kepler predicted his death. So here we go, we tie it all together again. When the 3rd Swedish Army commanded by Prince Carl Gustav came close to Prague, all three Swedish armies launched a number of attacks against the city that, thanks to the energy of Field Marshal Colorado and their citizen soldiers, including Jews and students of Academic Legion, uh, offered a strong fortifications of resistance. We talked about throwing anything they could to blockade uh, on the bridge. This kind of gives you an, another sort of American parallel because this doesn't happen too often, folks. When, when a, a city is under siege or there's a battle that has to be won, those boundaries that you have during normal life, such as religion or, or status or whatever you may, you may take it, they go by the wayside because now this is a, a battle of survival. This was very interesting for the sense of you were maybe compared to the, the, the battle uh, uh, of New Orleans with uh, uh, President Andrew Jackson. This, that was actually a, a, a ragtag group of Americans. We're talking Native Americans. We're talking freed slaves. We're talking uh, enchained slaves. We're talking pirates. <laughs> and and, and uh, the future president of the United States, all trying to stop the, the British from taking over New Orleans at the Battle of the War of 1812. So this is very similar. It didn't matter what section of life you were in in Prague or what your status was in life or who you were or what, who, what god you actually worshipped you were going to fight and you're going to stop the Swedes from coming in. It was just a, a good idea to do so. So when in November Gustav received a report about the sign of peace, he ordered his troops to leave. Unable to enter the city, the Swedes settled for looting the castle. That wasn't so pleasant. So they couldn't get across to Old Town across the Flatopa River, so they backtracked as they left the city They left hardly anything unturned. And if you take a tour of Prague Castle, you'll see a lot of wonderful things in St. Vitus Cathedral, but you won't see a lot of the leftover works of art that were basically destroyed. You might see bits and pieces of it, but you'll, from, from Kutnahora to Prague to Bruno in, the, in, in southern Moravia, there's just bits and pieces of treasure that are left over. Maybe just sections of giant panoramic paintings that were, weren't completely destroyed that they kept and they still house in the museum in, in, in Prague Castle. Many of these treasures collected by Emperor Rudolf II, which we mentioned many times on this show, such as the Codus Gigas and the Codus uh, Origitus, were all taken by Sweden and sent off basically to Stockholm by a fortified horse and drawn carriage. Right, so they wanted to get it back to Stockholm pretty quickly. And a lot of this stuff can be found in Drottingham Palace in Stockholm. Now, there are a few monuments, Travis, that, that are erected. Maybe we can talk to some of those about this particular battle on the bridge uh, here in Prague. And most of these are basically an honor toward, towards uh, the General Colorado. Yeah, so that monument is on Colorado's tomb in the Maltese Order Church in Prague, which, by the way, that is an awesome church. It's hard to find, which makes it even more awesome, but it's right downtown. Um, and 
it's kind of to remind the victory over the Swedish, and it says, Here lies Rudolf, Count Colorado, Imperial and Royal Phil Felt Marshal and Grand Prior of the Order of Malta, defender of the old and new town of Prague against the Swedes. And then on Charles Bridge, you might see this, and there's a lot of statues and, and commemorations on Charles Bridge, and, and of course a lot of tourists, so it might be kind of hard to find this, but this is a very uh, unique inscription uh, from the 17th century Latin inscription that's actually on the bridge. Quote, rest here, Walker, and be happy. You have stopped here willingly, but unwillingly were stopped by the Goths, or known as the Swedes, and their uh, vandalic ferocity. All right, so um, that very interesting sort of tip to the cap to uh, the stopping of the Swedes and basically the fact that they were going to vandalize everything in Prague. Very interesting. So that's our focus on Prague, but let's kind of move on down D1, which is our, the modern-day highway, a two-hour drive southeast of here towards the city of Brno, the, the second largest city in the Czech Republic. Now, Travis, you've probably been to Brno a couple times. I've been there uh, several times and actually gone to Spielberg Castle, which is on a giant mount in the middle of the city. A very unique city, but it's got a history of its own. And one thing that kind of links Prague with Brno is the sense that they were both attacked by the Swedes. Brno, under the Swedish siege in 1645, uh, was the only city which successfully fended off the Swedish pressure, or more precisely, the siege, and allowed the Austrian Empire to reform its army and resist the Swedes. During this process, military leader Rado de Sociés, who's a former Swedish soldier, I don't know if I said that correctly, but I gave it a good try, and the Swedish rector Father Martin Streda, but played both important roles. As a reward, the city's privileges were renewed, and Bruno also got a new symbol uh, uh, for the city itself. And of course, I actually got to see uh, in the symbol, you see the symbol, there's a lot of symbolism in the, in the coat of arms in the city of Bruno uh, that pays homage to this. But I got a chance to see a reenactment last summer of the attack by the Swedes on Spielberg Castle. And when I say you have to walk up the steepest part of, the, of, of that, that mountain right there, they have the big hill in the middle of the city, it is unbelievably steep. And these reenactors were carting real cannons up basically uh, a, a 45 to, uh, degrees sort of incline at some place. Um, and they were just pulling and pushing uh, with several men to get the cannons up to the top. And that's really what they said happened as the Swedes had a hard time trying to get their cannons atop of the largest prefaces in, in all of uh, Bordeaux. The final phase of the Thirty Years' War was a defense of Bruno, as we mentioned, and it prevented the advance to Vienna. So this was like the last line in the sand that could stop the Swedes from actually going down to Vienna to sack uh, this empire. And it clearly showed off the identification of the inhabitants, Catholicism, and the Habsburg monarchy. So there was that connection that might have been not so strong in Prague, but it was in Bruno. The defense of Bruno actually also saved the city of Olomouc, uh, which was an, a very important seat and bishopric to all of that area of Moravia. The anniversary of this was celebrated as the town's holiday on August 15th. Moreover, you will see that you'll see these one descendant of the Swedish general is in each family in Moravia. <laughs> Everyone wants to take credit for that, of course. Um, and this is at least what most people say. Uh, but Travis, there's an actually very famous legend that will kind of throw you off if you want to set your watch to the, to the uh, church bells in Bruno. You're going to be a little off. And that says everything to do with this battle and the siege by the Swedes. So according to this famous legend, the siege took longer than the Swedish leader Torstenson had expected. Not one week, but three months. They were trying to seize the city and its castle Spielberg, and there's obviously no surprise there that their morale was pretty low. So Torstenson was furious, and he had to decide. So he called his officers over to a pub, as all good Czech uh, legends have it, and said, 
Tomorrow, we shall make our last attack on the city. Before the bells on Petrov strike noon, Brno must be ours. If not, we shall retreat. Okay, but unfortunately for him, there was a man who could understand Swedish, and so he went over to the Moravians and let them know. So when it came to the final battle and the Swedes seemed to be winning, Such sent a bell ringer to strike 12 o'clock in St. Peter's Cathedral. But actually, it was only 11 o'clock. And in fact, it did make the Swedes withdraw. So since that day, the Petrov bells have always struck noon one hour before 12. Now in the capital of Moravia, you can remember this event every day at 11 a.m. when you hear the noon bells being rung. So actually, that's actually a neat story that has at least some, some sense of truth that it does ring <laughs> at 11 a.m. So be careful with your watch on that one. On this show, on the Bohemian Podcast, we've also talked about some other Swedish connections to what has happened here in Bohemia. One in particular was one of the more haunted castles in all of Czech Republic. is known as Huska Castle and its gateway to hell. Now, this story about a giant chasm opening up underneath uh, a church in, during uh, the early Middle Ages uh, caused uh, a great deal of interest because no one could actually fill the hole, and there was a sulfuric sort of smell to it. So there's a lot of talk about this being a gateway to hell, and sort of the occult feeling kind of was centered around the Huska Castle, which actually lasted well into the 20th century when the Nazi occupation came in. They also took control of this and of this castle and did experiments there on the occult. But going back to the Swedish invasion in the 1640s, we can see that there was a, a commander by the name of Aranto who also dabbled in black magic, and he decided that this castle would be home to his laboratory in 1639. And what was what what he was doing was there seemed to terrify the local peasants so much that they assassinated him. At the 17th century, at the time of the Thirty Years' War, during a period when the castle Huska stood empty and was chosen by the Swedish rogue commander uh, of his brigades and mercenaries, this headquarters became a center of occult study. Aranto was also reputed to be a, a, involved in black magic and alchemy, and he performed, performed unsavory experiments in the castle, some say with uh, experiments on local citizen, citizenry. Not only this, uh, but during the time of Aranto's occupation, his soldiers became a terror to the local village people until at least two hunters willing to risk the consequences snuck up to the Huska castle in the middle of the night and shot Aranto through the window, supposedly, as he was working on his laboratory to discover the elixir of eternal life. You can get more of that information on our History of Alchemy podcast for sure. So that has a connection, a Swedish connection at Huska castle. But another interesting sort of connection with the Swedish invasion, dealt with the, the Codex Giga, better known as the Devil's Bible. Yeah, so we brought this up pretty thoroughly in the Rudolph II episode. Again, it's, it's a really cool story, so why not, why not kind of uh, go over it again a little bit? So the Codex is believed to have been created by Hermann the Recluse and the Benedictine monk of Podlajice near Hurim, in the Czech Republic, Hurim also is where Jan Midlarsh is from, the famous executioner. See, we're tying it all together here. It's all coming around. Now, the monastery was destroyed during the 15th century in the Hussite Wars. Records within the Codex end at the year 1229. And the Codex was later, later pledged to the Cistercian Sedlets Monastery and then brought to the Benedictine Monastery in Brzezno. And it was kept there for over a century in a monastery in Brumov until it was taken to Prague in 1594 because of a direct order by no less than Rudolf II himself. Now, at the end of the Thirty Years' War, and there's all... So, guys, if you guys want to hear more about what, what this Bible is, it is huge. It is, you know, a meter 50 by a meter 50 by a meter. It's like 
yeah, it's vellum, like 200 animals had to die because of this book. It's, it is the biggest medieval manuscript, and it's called the Devil's Bible for a reason. But to find out that reason, you're going to have to listen to the other episode. But in any case, at the end of the Thirty Years' War in 1648, the entire collection, you know, Rudolf II, we've mentioned he has all kinds of, he had nails from Noah's Ark and, you know, coins from, from Judas's betrayal and all that kind of stuff, um, not to mention a holy grail or two. And the entire collection was taken as war booty by the Swedish army. So from 1649 to, to 2007, it was kept in the Swedish Royal Library in Stockholm. By the way, it took at least two guys to carry that Bible. So from Prague to Stockholm, that is not a short distance. So the 7th of May, 1697, a fierce fire broke out at the royal castle in Stockholm, and the royal library suffered very badly. The codex was rescued from the flames by being thrown out of a window. So the codex had its own little mini defenestration here. The codex apparently injured a bystander, and some of its leaves fluttered away, and they are still missing today, basically, which is, which is pretty sad. But in any case, in September 2007, after 359 years, the Codex Giga returned to Prague on loan from Sweden until January 2008 and was on display at the Czech National Library. Czechs and tourists alike lined up for hours to view the Bible for the short time it was on display here in Prague. There's documentaries about it, and, and um, there's all kinds of things you guys can find if you're more interested. One thing that sticks out to me is that I, I've been to Stockholm a couple times, and it's very hard to find a lot of things in their military history museum or any other museums that they have there, which are actually very fine museums. But they don't have a whole lot of the booty that they, they took from Bohemia. They do have them, but they don't really promote them. Because I think there's this modern-day sort of sort of want by the Czech government to maybe get some things back that were taken that are considered national property. But if you were to do that, I mean, that, imagine you'd have to close down the you know the museums in London and, and, and you know and some of these other great museums that have things from Egypt and other places uh, because they have that kind of connection to culture and nationalism. But it is hard to find those things. They do have them. The Devil's Bible is. Uh, pretty much put in their archives and on a very rare occasion you're able to have uh, have a viewing. It really doesn't leave Stockholm that much other than that one time in 2007 when it came here to uh, Czech Republic. And an another mo uh, moment I kind of want to bring this to a close as we're wrapping up our podcast tonight is the sheer loss of the architecture and the treasure that was here because of the looting brings to mind a lot of things that, that go on right now in our, our current world with uh, Islamic State going into places in Iraq and, and looting and stealing and destroying statues and those type of things that, that are, that are in, in there because of religious viewpoints. And, you know, as amateur historians, it, it, it hurts. <laughs> it hurts to see these things that have been around for thousands or hundreds of years that are just laid waste to by, by people that uh, want to do damage and see things burn. And one of those things that comes to mind with this particular story is what Travis alluded to, was the room that Emperor Rudolf II had with all his things that he had gathered uh, throughout his, his reign here in Prague, things that, that were considered to be you know, a piece of wood from Noah's Ark or some of the beautiful sort of uh, commissions that he had done by the famous artists of the known world, uh, maps and, and information and books in, in his wonderful library, all gone. Uh, not nothing really much left. So when you do come to Prague to see, maybe take a tour of Prague Castle or go to Brno, you might just see bits and pieces of things that the tour guide might say, 
this was actually a much bigger portrait or a much bigger picture, but we saved this part because it was important enough that was, wasn't burned completely by the Swedes when they left town. In, interesting history, to say the least, but next time you walk across Charles Bridge, Travis, uh, and you kind of take in the, the very touristy feeling of, of, of the beauty of Prague, remember that was the scene of a hand-to-hand -hand combat that had Prague in its balance, that it could have been raised to the ground. But if it wasn't for uh, a quick-thinking commander and a bunch of ragtag civilians, Prague would have been, wouldn't probably be the city that we see today. So we want to thank you very much for listening to the Bohemian Podcast today. We have a couple quick announcements. Please remember that uh, our Facebook page is, is gaining more notoriety. We have a new Bohemian YouTube channel, so you can actually see Travis and I actually do things visually with our tours across the Czech Republic or taking in some, some neat things that are going here in Prague. You can also go to uh, bohemian.com to see what's the latest uh, for both the YouTube channel and our audio podcasts. And also podcastnick.com, which is a, a website that Travis put together that has both his projects and my projects together as a one-stop shop to kind of look at everything that we're doing. That's podcastnick.com for a complete review of all our projects together. So for Travis Dow, I'm Pete Coleman saying Nascladano from Prague. You have been listening to the Bohemian Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Dow. Visit bohemican.com for more information on this episode, other episodes, and much more information about history, traditions, and culture in the Czech Republic. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, and review, and don't forget to rate us. We would love to hear from you. Send comments, ideas, and corrections on our comments page on bohemican.com. Or get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Tune in to our sister podcast, History of Alchemy, which is also on iTunes or on historyofalchemy.com. Until next time on the Bohemian Podcast, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.